going to be in Genesis chapter 48 and 49, right at the end of the book, um, the first book of the Bible. And this is our second to last message in our Joseph series. We've been in this narrative for, for a long time now. It's a long narrative and we're coming into land now. And what we've been looking at recently is how this family that we've been focusing on for the whole of our series since we started in January is now in the process of becoming not just a family, but a nation, God's nation. And we are, um, we, we've seen this family being led into Egypt, which is almost acting as a bit of a cocoon for this family, um, that they've entered in as something quite small and unimpressive. Um, and now they've come into the, the nation of Egypt. They are going to go through a transformational work that when they leave, they are going to look nothing like what they started as. And as they're in this cocoon, we almost get a little bit of a window here in, in chapters 48 and 49 into this process of family into nation. Chapter 48, which we're not going to look at in too much detail, is, uh, is really just an intimate family moment for, for this, this family. Jacob, the father of the 12 sons that we've been looking at, uh, he gets to meet Joseph's sons, his grandchildren, for the first time. These grandchildren that were born in Egypt that he's never met. He is introduced to them for the first time. There's this wonderful line in verse 11 where he says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. So he, he died to the idea of seeing Joseph. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. So I didn't expect to see you, Joseph, but I'm getting to not only meet you, but my grandchildren. And then the rest, the rest of the chapter is really just this, this beautiful moment where Jacob officially adopts these grandchildren into the family of God. But from this wonderfully close family moment, we then go into chapter 49, where we'll spend most of our time. And Jacob, as he's about to die, is passing on the blessing to his, 11, uh, to his 12 sons throughout the chapter. And it ends in this, again, quite a family moment, but it ends in verse 28 with him saying, all of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And in passing on these blessings to his 12 sons, he is passing on the blessing to the 12 tribes, he establishes them as the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, the structure that is going to make up the nation of Israel forevermore, that we are witnessing here in many ways, the birth of the nation of Israel. And the difference here that we, we haven't seen yet in Genesis is that the, the blessing and the call of God has always been passed on man to man to man. It's been Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, one person to one person to one person. But here, the blessing is then fanned out to 12 people to begin this multiplication into a nation. And God chooses to form this nation through blessing. The father Jacob speaks the blessings of God over his sons. And today's message is called Three Lessons from the Blessing. And we are going to look at three of the different blessings that J uh, Jacob speaks over his 12 sons. And we're going to draw out three different lessons that we can take so that we can be a people who are confident that we too are able to walk into the rich, abundant blessings that God has for us. So let's get started. First lesson, lesson number one is sin steals. Sin steals. Let's look at verse three together from chapter 49. Jacob says this to Reuben. I think it will appear on the screen in just a moment. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first strengths of my first fruits of my strength, sorry. Preeminent in dignity 
and preeminent in power. There you can see it at verse three on the screen. Now at this point, at verse three, we are expecting an absolute blessing bonanza to come down on Reuben's head. He's the first firstborn. So the firstborn always gets the best blessing. Let's carry on to verse four. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And that is where the blessing for Reuben stops, or the anti-blessing, if you like. This, make no mistake about it, is brutal for Reuben. That we should be reading right now, blessing after blessing and favour and lavish goodness coming down on the head of Reuben. He's about to receive all of this goodness from his father. And instead, just a few short sentences and then silence. And the incident that Jacob's referring to here is way back in chapter 35. uh, Reuben slept with one of Jacob's concubines. So actually the mother of one of two of Reuben's brothers. And this one moment, this one time of indiscretion, this one time where he couldn't control himself and he followed after and and chose to follow the path of sin. And he's going to lose out on innumerable blessings. Here we see straight up from in 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 Reuben sin is a serious business we see here the power that sin has to steal to rob and not just anybody this is for God's people because make no mistake Reuben is still he's still included he's still part of the covenant he's still one of God's chosen people you can't become one of God's chosen people and then become unchosen by God hallelujah but here, because he indulged in sin, he is now he has now been robbed of so much goodness and favour that he should have been able to enjoy in the days to come and that he should have been able to pass on to his descendants. And I think sometimes we as Christians and as followers of Jesus, we can have quite a complicated relationship with sin because we know We have been completely forgiven of all of our sins. That because of the gracious and wonderful act of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection, we are cleansed by his blood forever, past, present, future, all of our sins covered. We can never once be found guilty for our sins because of Jesus. Not because of what we've done, but because we too are in the covenant of grace, just like Reuben finds himself in. But from an understanding of that and enjoying it and celebrating of it, it can lead us to thinking, does my sin then really matter? Does it really, particularly things that are a bit more hidden, like what I think about that person and the judgmental thoughts that I always have whenever so-and-so does that, or the things that I look at in secret, they really have consequence? I think as we look at Reuben's fate, it should be really sobering for us. Because it's, it's very easy to fall into that way of thinking. But here we see, by grace, by God's grace, he gets in. But he misses out on so much of the life that God would have for him. And the thing is, nobody's there to challenge Reuben. Nobody's, nobody challenges him and says, look, takes him to one side, has a word with him about, hey, what about this? Maybe we should try and sort that out. This is nobody's responsibility but Reuben's himself. And he doesn't choose to deal with it. I think this first lesson that we have that sin steals, it's a warning for us. 
as believers, that it is possible for us to know God, to be in a relationship with God, and yet still live our lives in a way that actually squanders many of the rich blessings that he has for us. And it should lead us to, to sober reflection in our own life. I think often we can, we can frame the question, I know I've done this before, of, of a more kind of, can I get away with dot, dot, dot? Is it okay if I dot, dot, dot? And will I still be in? But my question is, do we, do we want to end up like Reuben? Do we want to come to a point where we realize we've missed out? What have I done? How could I have been so foolish? Do we want to miss out on the extravagant blessings that God has for us? Because we then find a perfect contrast to Reuben in verse 8 as we come to Judah. And now if there's any brother within this, within this family that should get no blessing whatsoever, it is Judah. Because as bad as what Reuben has done, Judah is definitely the one that has done the most evil of all of the brothers. He should get no blessing whatsoever. He sold Joseph off into slavery. We saw that the whole of chapter 38, as we saw right at the beginning of the series, is devoted to just how evil and wicked Judah is. But if the first lesson is that sin steals, lesson number two is that repentance restores. Repentance restores. Let's just look at what Jacob says over the second, uh, over the most evil of all the brothers, Judah. And we'll just pick up a portion of it because it's quite long, but from verse 10, you'll see it on the screen there. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, Jacob's saying two things here to, Ju to Judah. He's saying, not only are you going to have, a, you're going to have a mighty king come from your line. There is going to be a king. He's talking about King David, who is going to establish Israel as a mighty nation. And he will be the mighty king that they always talk about as the best king we've ever had. He is going to come from the line. But as you can see here, he's not just saying there will be a mighty king. He's saying far more. He's saying the scepter shall not depart. He's saying every single great king every every king who is worthy of the name is going to come from your line he's essentially saying judah your name is going to be synonymous with greatness and then the second part of verse 10 the bit that says in tribute until tribute comes to him to him shall be the obedience of the people this is one of those verses in the bible that depending on which version you've got and translation is is translated in loads of different ways um, but most scholars seem to be agreed that what is in mind here is an allusion to the fact that there will be a king so great over israel one day that he will not just rule over israel but every nation in the world will submit to him bow the knee before this king and we know from our vantage point that this king is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that from Judah's line and from David's line is going to come the Messiah that Israel will be waiting for and longing for, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to come from Judah's line. And if that wasn't enough, we then move on to verse 11, as you'll see. And this is, he's talking in poetic language, so it's not always immediately clear to us. Let me just read it. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. There's a lot of grapevine, wine, grape images here. And in the thought world of the day, there was nothing that signified abundance and plenty more than wine. 
And what this these verses are saying, or this verse is saying, is basically Judah is going to have so much wine, so much abundance flowing from his uh, from his land that he will be able to afford to tether donkeys to the choicest grapes that make the best wine and let them eat it because he's going to have so much of it, he won't know what to do with it. And then even more, he's saying that you're going to wash your garments in this choice wine. You're just going to there's going to be flowing in ways you've never known, and you're going to be able to just just know the goodness of God you'll be able to wash your clothes in this wine he's basically saying look your name is going to be synonymous with greatness your land is going to be flowing with plenty and we think how on earth did Judah the most evil of brothers get his hands on this blessing and it is quite simple repentance two brothers who were evil Reuben and Judah but whereas Reuben ignored the sin that he had committed, never dealt with it. The path that we have seen Judah take in our series so far is that there is a moment where he came to terms with what he had done. He felt the conviction of God and he came before God and he owned it. He said, I am guilty. God, I want you to help me. Would you forgive me? And as he owned it and came before God, that was the beginning of his journey. But here's the thing repentance is not just a one-time act the difference between these brothers is not just that one said said one thing at one time and the other didn't but as we have seen for judah this was a moment that sparked the beginning of a transformed heart that culminated in that moment in chapter 44 where he he stepped into his brother's benjamin's shoes to take the punishment that he deserved so that their father jacob would not suffer Here's how David, King David, puts it in Psalm 139. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. In these words of David and in the life of Judah, we see repentance is a posture of heart for the believer. Because this is King David speaking in this psalm. He loves God. He's, he's a model of what it looks like to go after God. He's a flawed man, but he's a model of, of devotion to God. And what he's saying is, God, I'm inviting you in to show me any offensive way. Show me where I am wrong so that you can lead me into what is right. I think this is often why we resist this path of repentance. Because we really don't like admitting when we're wrong. I don't like admitting when I'm wrong. You don't like admitting when you're wrong. We hate it. None of us enjoy it. We're a proud people. We do not like admitting that we were in the wrong. When was the last time you woke up and, or you, you came across a situation you're like, oh, I thought I was right, but I'm not. I'm wrong. Yes. You've never had that. And to be honest, for me, some of these these recent days where I've been praying into um, some of the, the racial injustice in this nation and some of the what that means for me, one of the ways I've seen my own heart wanting to rebel and wanting to, uh, to, to kick against is the idea that maybe I have been wrong or the reality that I am wrong. My heart hates it, but it's the truth and, and that, there's a, that I have been blind and that I haven't seen things. It's part of the, the hardest part, or certainly a hard part of the process is recognising, actually, I have been wrong in this and I need to change. But if 
if we can be a people who just like Judah and just like David allow our hearts to be changed and allow our hearts to be challenged and we have this posture of heart towards God of I'm inviting you in come and show me where I'm in the wrong and how I can change look where it leads us because I think it is difficult to imagine a blessing that is more abundant than this one that is given to Judah and it's just the grace of God that again just a reminder Judah was evil he was a sinner. There was no way he could have made himself right again. He should have lost absolutely everything in God for what he did. And yet, he turned to God. He came with a heart that said, I am wrong. I have done wrong. I am in the wrong. I've got it wrong. Please forgive me. Please help me. And everything that he lost was restored to him everything that he was lost was restored that if we can be a people who can cultivate this heart where we're willing to come towards god and say god would you show me where i am wrong we too can know that we walk in the path of abundant blessing from god so that's the second lesson lesson number two repentance restores which then brings us to our final lesson perseverance provides Jacob now turns to uh, Joseph, the, the one on, on whom the, the, this story, the narrative we've been looking at has been centering around and the one who, um, who they owe their survival to really as a family. And so we, as we come, we come with a bit of expectation and anticipation and this blessing does not disappoint. Let's read it from verse 25. By the God of your father, who will help you, by the almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, Blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. If we can have verse 26, sorry, I was reading from the screen. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. It is fair to say that here Jacob is not holding back in any way whatsoever when he blesses Joseph. We can probably safely categorise this in the mega super abundant blessings category. He's saying you will be blessed from above, you'll be blessed from below, you're going to be blessed with children, you're going to be blessed with land. The idea here is that Joseph is going to receive a blessing that is comprehensive and complete and full. Every single one of the needs of a human being, the, the, the wants, the whims of a human being satisfied by this blessing from God. But the lesson here is that this, these abundant blessings had to be fought for. We just turn back one page to verse 23, the beginning of Jacob's blessing over Joseph. And he says this, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely. Here, Jacob, again, using quite poetic language, he's describing all of the unjust suffering and torment that Jacob, Joseph has faced throughout his whole life that we've looked at in some detail. And the imagery that he uses, I think, is really interesting because he, he pulls on this imagery of archers. He says the archers bitterly attacked him. Archers are, are symbolic of organized warfare. Here he's not saying, oh, Jacob was, was victim to some random 
bandit attacks just time and time and time after again and it was just unfortunate and unfortunate and unfortunate and unfortunate for Jacob but it was just kind of how his life went for Joseph sorry no what he's saying is that Jacob Joseph was a victim to long-term full-scale orchestrated events of the enemy that were specifically designed to try and take Joseph down Joseph was drawn into not just a couple of skirmishes. Joseph's life was drawn into warfare. And then notice how Joseph achieves victory. I'll read from verse 24. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely. Verse 24. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His bow remained unmoved. The way that Joseph saw victory against these bitter and severe attacks was that he just refused to be defeated. Notice here, there is no spectacular counterattack from Joseph. There's no feat of strength, no moment of cunning and strategy where he's able to use his giftedness to just turn the tables and, and grab a, a conclusive and epic victory from the jaws of defeat. And he just turns the tide of the battle straight away. There's none of that. He just remained unmoved. That in some ways it's just, it's kind of boring. It's not the movie that we would write. He just remained unmoved. When the attacks were bitter and the harassment was severe, he just stood on his steadfast faith in God. And here we have, I think, the secret to victory as a Christian. This is what it looks like to win as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I think often we can think that, that triumph and victory in the Christian life is, is won by spectacular moments and epic feats on our behalf. That you're only really successful as a Christian if you kind of do a, a, a radical gesture of dropping everything, selling off everything, moving to, uh, to some far off unreached people group, becoming a missionary in obscurity for life. Or if you're able to preach the gospel in a way that just gets hundreds and hundreds of people to flood forward and give their life to Jesus. And look, if God calls you to that and that's what he's got for you, then go for it. And that maybe that's what he's got for some of us. But here in Joseph, we see what true victory in God is really characterised by. Just keeping on going through the bitter attacks. That when we're harassed, as it says here, that there is a, there is a designed and orchestrated harassment on our life that is designed to wear us down bit by bit, that over time, over months, over years, over, we just get weaker and weaker and weaker. And then we just come to a point where without it, maybe even realizing it, we just kind of give up. You know, this is a tough time to be a Christian in the UK. We've seen even some of that happening this morning. Some of the slander, some of the shaming that increasingly culture is moving away from Christian ideals. And it seems it seemed almost antiquated and ridiculous and a bit in the past to still be a believer in Jesus. And that even holding to Christian values and ethics is seen as, as hateful by some people and in some spheres. I heard the other day that only 2% of P 
people in Manchester are part of a Bible-believing, gospel-centered church, just 2%. Like we are in, a, in a, a tiny minority. And I think being part of a church in lockdown is really challenging. They're like, well, we're meeting on Zoom and it's just not quite the same. And it's, not, it, it's nowhere near as good as what, we, what we're normally able to do. And being a Christian isn't easy at the best of times. It just makes it harder. And being part of church it is made harder. And it's just easier to get distracted. And we don't get as much from the meetings. And it, it's undoubtedly, it's difficult. This is one of the hardest times that many of us have had to face in our Christian journey so far. That for many of us, this may be one of the biggest tests of faith that we've had. But my call is, Revelation Church, we, we just must keep going. We must be a people that say, no, we are not going to be moved. We might be being harassed. We might be knowing the bitter attacks of the enemy. But we must keep going. We must persevere, standing steadfast on our God, remaining faithful to our God, faithful to one another, faithful to our church. Because that is how victory is won in God. And if we keep going, if we keep going, the blessings are staggering. Because in fact, the, the blessings that we are about to receive or that we are to receive are even greater than the blessings that we see here for Joseph. In Revelation chapters two and three, we have this image of Jesus speaking to seven churches. Um, and they are, they, they are symbolic of all churches throughout all time. And Jesus speaks to them and they are all facing hardship and difficulty in their own way, different types of hardship, which I just find moderately encouraging that even back then and forevermore, the church can kind of expect discouragement. So when we face it, we, we know it's coming. Jesus promised it. But he says this line to each one of them as he addresses them individually. He says to them, to the one who conquers, I will. And then he speaks a different type, a different blessing over each church. And what Jesus is saying to his church is he's just saying, all I want from you, all I want is for you to remain faithful. Just keep going. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep following me. And if you do, this is what I'm going to give you. This is what I'm going to present to you. This is what I have for you. And as we look at chapter 49, we see as God forms a nation, he forms his nation by speaking blessing into being. That he wants his nation to know, you are going to be characterised by being a people who I richly provide for and just keep blessing and keep blessing and keep blessing. And as Jacob here speaks to his, his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and he speaks the blessings of God into being in them, just as he does that. So we have Jesus Christ in heaven speaking into being the abundant blessings of God over us as a people. From Genesis, this first book of the Bible, all the way through to Revelation, this is just who he is. He's the God who delights in doing good to his people. And so he continues today. And I think these three lessons just help us to, to know how can we step into all of the goodness that God has from us? Well, knowing that sin, it really will steal all of the goodness that God 
has for us in the future. But if we are able to cultivate open, repentant hearts before him, if we are able to then just keep faithfully moving forward, keep going on with him, saying that I am going to remain unmoved even in the face of harassment and attacks. I'm just going to keep going, God, keep trusting in you. If we are able to do that, we will find ourselves walking on the path of abundant blessing that he has for us. And where I want to finish is I want to, to read over us as a church and as individuals the, the blessings that Jesus Christ speaks over his church in those two chapters in Revelation. That we might know exactly what it is that we've got in store for us. We might be able to, to imagine and picture and receive in our hearts. If I keep going, if I keep remaining faithful, this is what I have to look forward to. I'll read them over us, I'll read them over you as an individual. And what we're going to do is I'm going to read them out and I've asked Rob if he'll then um, just provide a bit of background guitar music, some ambient sound, just to create a moment for us after I've read them to just think and reflect and respond in our own way wherever we are. That we can think, which of these lessons might God be challenging me about or speaking me, speaking into my life? And what might he be asking me to do as a response to this? And then I'll come back after a minute or so of that and pray. So here are the promises that Jesus speaks over us, speaks over his church as we faithfully follow him to the end. He says this. You might want to close your eyes and just receive them. To the one who conquers, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will give you the crown of life. I will give you authority over the nations. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall you go out of it. And I will write on you the name of my God. I will grant you to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 